Hi, everybody. Uh, this will be our second episode on the issue of an AP report that was um, recently published that deals with abuse. And so this is your content warning. If there are little ears around, you might want to listen to this in, with headphones on um, or, or more privately. Also, it may not be the kind of thing that everybody wants to listen to. Uh, there's something that I said last time that I want to repeat, which is I don't think that we are designed to bear the catastrophes of an entire civilization. I don't think we're wired to handle that much um, difficulty. When something really difficult happens, I decide whether this is something I need to get into or I need to not. And this is one that I felt like I needed to get into. Now, today's interview uh, takes just a little bit of explaining. So uh, when the AP News report was released, um, my friend Christopher Cunningham pretty quickly put together an article and responded to a couple of things that I thought were helpful and were useful to, to, for me to understand. He did it quick enough. Um, he did it quickly in part because he studied this a few years ago. And so he had written on the issue before. And so uh, confessions and uh, mandatory reporting laws were something that he knew about. And one of the things he was attacking this, one of the angles he was attacking this from was, um, as it turns out, there's not a, lot of, a whole lot of evidence that um, mandatory reporting laws actually make people better off and safer. And the reason is because people don't report as much, or people don't confess as much, meaning bad people who have done really horrible things um, do not confess when they know that there's a 100% chance or a very high likelihood that they are going to be uh, reported. And so um, if you want to maximize confessions, then obviously you would never report. But if you wanted to maximize convictions, you would also probably have some kind of a middle ground approach where um, there, there's something else going on. Um, that's something that I think was really useful and it, 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 it makes sense to me because I come from a policy background. Now, you'll hear Christopher kind of um, grapple with, with whether he did a good job or not, and I think he, I think he, he does a very honest, um, I don't know, grappling with, with how the article went and how he's, he's framing it. A um, couple of things that I want to add. My goal here is not to defend him. It is also not to attack him and pose really hard questions. My goal is just to have the conversation with him and see what comes from it. And I'm glad I did, and I think that I learned a lot. Um, at the same time, um, one of the things that he said is that it, it probably takes a couple of days of, of letting people process, and maybe that's the right idea. Um, he said that, and I think there's something to that. Um, and at the same time, and this is, this is my take, a number of people have said you should not care more about your church's reputation than you care about protecting victims, and I agree completely. Um, but I find that the people who say that sometimes only mean that in one direction. Uh, that when I challenged them, uh, some people I saw were, were calling for people to leave the church over this, and I said, you know, I, I, I'm not sure that that's the priority here. I think the priority needs to be the victims. And that, that was not received always terribly well, um, despite coming from a very honest place. So I'm good with the idea that we shouldn't jump right to um, our own narrative and backing up our narrative. And there's, there's some wisdom in that. But at the same time, there's also some, some, there needs to be some recognition. And this is where I feel like it's really important um, that if we can't see what the church is getting right, and we ignore those things. For example, if the helpline is helping more people um, than we think and we get rid of it, is that really a net benefit? Um, and you'll hear us talk it through in, in here that way. I want us to be able to find the things that are working as well as the things that obviously did not. No one in this case is saying that everything went right. Um, no one in this case is trying to say that um, that, that there aren't things that, that 
that were broken, that, that didn't work. Um, and I think that that's really important. As always, my goal is just to have a hard conversation well, and I'll let you decide whether, whether we work at that. Um, happy to have feedback or thoughts. This is a chance to interview a friend of mine and get his thoughts. Um, and there are some parts that are pretty tender. So with that, here's my interview with Christopher Cunningham, who is the um, editor, the managing editor of Public Square Magazine. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Radical Civility. Um, this is one of those episodes that's probably going to be a little bit on the harder side. Um, so I have with me my friend Christopher Cunningham, and um, it's been a hard couple of days. Um, I woke up two days ago and read an article that that left me um, quite emotional. I think I'm not the only one who felt that way. Um, and uh, there were a lot of competing feelings in my heart and a lot of things that I felt. Um, and Christopher wrote something that I think has been uh, a point of a fair amount of controversy. Um, he's, you're also a friend of mine and you're somebody I trust and you think carefully. And, and I, I think, you know, to the extent that I can, I feel like I know your heart. And uh, so I, I reached out and asked if you wanted to talk and if you'd be willing to, to go on the record and answer some things. Um, and my goal is neither to, to get to, give you gotchas and, and make you feel bad, but neither is it to, to let you off the hook. It's more to just continue the conversation yeah. and to say, where are we and what can we do and, and how do we move forward? So with that, um, why don't I let you kick it off and, and you can kind of talk about where you are on things and then, and then we'll go from there. Well, I appreciate it, Ben. Um, it's a really sad story. Um, you know, we've been studying Job this week for come follow me and, uh, so, so much of that book is, is about the problem of evil, right? Why bad things happen to good people. And um, that's why I've been thinking about that this week. And, and then you read this article. And Thursday night, I was in my car. Um, I forget where I was driving back from. And I uh, just stopped at a red light. And I just started... I started weeping um, because God does allow so much evil in the world. There is so much and there's so many people and, you know, we have this idea that it's all part of this bigger, grander plan. And yet sometimes you just shake your head and think, what, what did this infant learn from this like how did this do any good to anyone like why could god allow this thing to happen in this instance times the thousands and thousands of children who have this kind of thing happen to them and uh and yeah uh it's it's tough 
this is a really sad, I mean, it's a tragedy. Um, the man responsible for it should be kicked out of the church, thrown in jail um, until the end of his life and, and then rotten hell. Um, and it's sad that he cut the middle part off of that. And uh, just to save his own suffering for a little bit, um, it's not fair. Uh, it's absolutely wrong. It's, it's gross. And um, it, one, you know, one of the things that, that as I was thinking about this is that there's, there's only so much, how do I say this? There's some crimes that are so heinous that when somebody commits them, it's not enough for that one person to suffer. It's almost like the guilt overflows, right? Like there's such a negative impact that even if you tortured them every day for the rest of their lives, and then you ended their life in a miserable way, you would still feel like that was not enough, that there is, is still a feeling of injustice. Um, and that's, that's how I feel with this one. Yeah, I agree. I agree. My, you know, I am so fortunate in so many ways to have so many loving relationships around me. And I think it just gets too easy to forget that these kinds of things are happening. They're happening in little houses and rural areas. They're happening in apartments next door. They're happening to your to next door neighbors and suburban cul-de-sacs like they're happening everywhere and I, I think I think sometimes it's easy to forget we don't see it it's behind closed doors and if it's not happening in your home it's kind of out of sight out of mind and I think and I think we can get by on that pretty easily sometimes and so when something like this happens and we have to be reminded of just the depths of how bad this can get um I mean, it kind of wakes wakes you up. It makes you re-ask those questions about about just just how this can be part of the plan of a loving God. Yeah. You wrote an article. I don't know that I would call it a response, but almost a a meditation, I guess. On um, well, no, I think a response, a Q and A. You know, what are, what are some questions? What are some context? Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people were angry. Um, I I am angry. Um, I think I think there's a lot of feelings about that. What was what was your desire with that piece, and 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 how do you see it now that you're reflecting on it? Um, the article. I um, I'm really glad I wrote the article. Um, uh, and I know a lot of people, they're going to be happy to hear that. Um, I don't think I appreciated the strength of feeling that people would have, um, about this, about this issue. And that's totally legitimate. I mean, I ended up going through those same feelings and I think the first reaction to learning about something like this is just to be revolted, um, to want to, to get justice wherever you can. And so I don't think trying to broaden the context is what a lot of people 
were looking for. And so for them, it, it became part of this broader problem. Um, and uh, that rather than sympathizing with these girls, we're trying to broaden the context. Um, and uh, I think that's probably a pretty fair criticism of the article. Um, and I think if I were to write it again, uh, I would. Um, I would either start with that exclusively for a day, or I, I'd start that as the beginning of the article before, before saying what I said. But, but I do think that there was a lot of important context that was left out of the original reporting. Uh, I, I certainly don't mean to, to criticize the reporting, right? Journalists have certain things that, that they need to do. Um, and the, the fellow who wrote this has a history of, of reporting on these kinds of issues. And so he has patterns and things to use. But I, the response I was seeing from so many people and what seemed to be the implication of the article is that what the church should do is have a policy where every single time they know of any child abuse, it gets reported to the police immediately. Um, I understand the instinct for that proposal, but from the, the, from the background I have, from the research that I've done, from my experiences with the helpline, I don't think that policy would end up producing the least amount of high, heinous child abuse. And I think that's the goal we all have. And so I think when something like this is hot uh, and we're clamoring for a solution, it can sometimes lead us to bad solutions that make us feel good, but that end up making the problem worse. Um, and it might be more out of sight, so we don't have to confront the problem but that it'll be there and there'll be more people like these little girls who are hurt uh, in similar or worse ways. And so before I wanted the conversation to spiral uh, out of control to the point where people were demanding this policy that um, my really honest assessment would make the problem worse, I wanted to say, hey, look, let's understand some of the broader context and perhaps why the church has made the decisions they have and how those decisions may help the problem more broadly, even though it's clearly failed in this specific instance. And so and so just to be clear, you think that it did fail in this instance and that what happened wasn't okay. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think when reading through the the article, knowing what was happening in the home, uh, that if the bishops had known what was happening in the home, I don't think we know exactly what they knew or when, but but they clearly should have reported. I, you know, I don't think there's any question about that, that this is an incident that should have been reported. Um, there was ongoing continual abuse and it should have been, it should have been reported. The church purposely has a policy where it can or cannot be reported uh, depending on the laws and the situations involved. And so making those individual calls is going to be one where you sometimes get the, the wrong call. And this was clearly one of those times. I don't think there's, I, I don't think anyone would argue about that. I, I don't, I don't even think the church's lawyers are trying to argue that, that the right call was made in this case. Yeah. I, when I was a, an administrator in middle school, one of the things I learned is that um, it's really, really important as soon as a bad thing has happened to sit down with staff. Um, so if you're suspending a student or if there's been a fight or, you know, 
um, if a parent comes in and, and curses you out, um, you need to sit down with everybody who's involved and do a hot wash. And a hot wash is a, a military term, from what I understand. We used it in my school where you sit down and you just talk through what happened and what you can learn so it never happens again. And you learn as much as you can. And one of the most important parts is to say, let's hit pause on the blame. It's not That's not going to help anybody. What are we going to do moving forward to make sure that this doesn't happen again? And there's always people who want to say, well, the blame is on them or the blame is on so-and-so. And that just messes up the whole conversation. There's nothing useful about that. And that doesn't mean that you don't have to have that conversation. When, when a teacher's not at their post and somebody gets hurt, that teacher needs to have that conversation and potentially a consequence. But that can't be at the same time that you're having the hot wash. You have to separate that, those out a little bit. Otherwise, the emotions don't make sense. And, and, and it's all just about finger pointing. Um, one of the things that has made me a little bit sad looking at the online conversation is um, there's always a tendency to either circle the wagons on the one side or on the other side to place blame and say, well, if you were just better people than you would, I don't think either of those are particularly helpful. I know of no one in the church who thinks that this was a good outcome. I know of no one who is defending this, right? And yet that's a very easy, cheap thing to say on Twitter, right? Well, you, so, so you just, you're defending um, that. No, nobody is defending this. Yeah. Nobody is okay with this happening. Um, the other piece that you're describing is something I'm familiar with because I think about policy a lot. And that is, you know, when I talk to people about a minimum wage, um, they say, well, we need one because it helps people. And I said, yes, it also hurts people. And if you haven't realized that most, most policies are trade-offs, then you shouldn't be making policy, right? Well, what do you mean it hurts people? Well, the money, the money isn't magic. It has to come from somewhere and it often comes from hours or it comes from profits or it comes from future development of the company. Um, I think that you raised a really interesting point that I had not thought about before, which is if you make it a mandatory reporting law, universal, um, that there's a good chance that a lot of abusers simply stop coming forward. And it doesn't implicate the church. It actually protects the church more legally because there's no gray area, right? If you hear about it, you report it, you move on, and now it's on, it's on the public agency. Um, but the issue in this case is if you switch that, if you make everybody a mandatory reporter, you will report 100% of the cases. But fewer people will come forward and you might end up saving fewer people. To, to, to attach some numbers to it, in the current system, let's say 500 people come forward, 400 of them are convicted and, and, and go to prison, and 100 are, are not because the bishop makes that call. Now we switch to a system in which um, it's up to the bishop to decide, and only 100 people come forward, but every single one of them, excuse me, the bishop doesn't decide, they have to call it in every time, um, and, so then, the, and th then only 100 people uh, confess every year. And all of them go to prison, but you're still net down by 300 people. This is this is the the part of what you were saying that made a lot of sense to me um, that I think a lot of people weren't catching, which is, you know, if, if we want to talk about what what fault the church has, that's fine. Maybe maybe in a few days. Right now, if you're trying to make policy, this is an important piece that you have to consider. I, I think getting back to your earlier question, one of the things I regret is that this may have been at a point where well, people aren't ready to start thinking about the policy and that people did still have these really strong emotions. Um, before we, I, I kind of get back to, to what you were saying, you mentioned something about blame. And I think something to notice about what's happening here is that this is a, it's litigation, right? Someone is suing the church and so we may not want it to be about blame in the larger conversation, but the source of this conversation is very much 
about blame. I think we all agree that that the, most of the blame falls on the father who did this for years and the mother who enabled it. How much of the blame should go to the church, right? What role did they play? And how can the church then help make these girls as whole as possible? And so a lot of the conversation does go immediately there because of the context of what's happening. Uh, and so I do think that that jumping from this individual case to the larger policy to the individual case can sometimes get us to a point where we're we're finger pointing, like you're saying, more than maybe maybe helpful. Um, well, and I think I think I think as a rule of thumb. Um, I get that people right now are, are are pretty wary of their institutions, right? Whether it's a church, whether it's yeah. schools, what, like that's just where we are as a society. And I don't think that's all bad, by the way. Um, but one of the things that, and this is just kind of how I think, um, I think that if your anger at an institution is greater than your anger at the person who did this, that's something that you should probably check, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, and that's not to say that the church, you know, if there, if there's policy we can change, I'm, I'm open to that discussion. Um, but I think at the end of the day, the evil was perpetrated by a man who committed suicide. Um, and it's very easy to try to, to transfer that. Right. And to say, well, other people are guilty of no, 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 no. Hold on. Hold on. That's, that's a very strong word. Right. If, if we screwed up, we screwed up and, and, and I'm not trying to minimize that, but that's, you know, you've been called some things on Twitter. I saw that. Um, and I, I'm sure that's been, you know, I, I bring that up not to make you into a martyr either. Right. The focus here should be on the girls and what they went through. Um, well, sure. I mean, I, I write publicly and I, I not infrequently will write uh, unpopular ideas, uh, you know, having people who mock me or insult me or, or threaten me is certainly kind of part of, of what you would expect uh, and what you hope is that there's at least some people who are also engaging with the idea. And I, I hope this article still produces that as we're kind of saying, okay, what what can happen next? I hope some of the ideas that we started with are help, helpful. Um, or Sorry, I said we're starting with some of the ideas that I presented in the article. I, I hope they are helpful uh, as we're moving into that into that conversation. I think what we what we are seeing right now is um, a really like classic uh, ethical debate. Um, so there's lots of camps uh, of trying to determine what is ethical, and I think what we're seeing here is something called utilitarianism and something called um, deontological uh, ethics. That's like principles, right? Like you, you, you have like a, like a virtue and you keep to the virtue and, and that's right from there. Yeah. And so deontological ethics say you do what's right and it doesn't matter what the consequences are. Um, so if you, uh, um, for example, someone stealing steals a loaf of bread, that's wrong. You throw them in jail. It doesn't matter if putting the only provider in jail makes those little children starve, right? Like, like the results don't matter. Um, that's a really uh, ugly example. Deontology is great in a lot of cases. Uh, a lot of times it can be really easy to justify things by making predictions about what will happen in the future. And since those are speculative by nature, you can kind of make them say whatever you want. So having firm rules about what is and is not okay can be really helpful. 
Uh, on the other hand, you have utilitarianism and uh, utilitarianism is something that's often used in movies as the bad guy's approach. Uh, utilitarianism can be used really badly. The idea behind utilitarianism is that you make the choice that is going to produce the most good overall. Uh, my apologies to any philosophers who might be listening, um, who I'm sure I've way oversimplified these ideas, but I think that gets the gist across. And so someone who is responding to this case from a deontological lens is going to say, hey, wait, you should report abusers when they come in. You didn't, and that's it. Someone from a utilitarian point of view, it really depends on what they think good is in this case. And I think for me, I'm defining good in this case as reducing abuse. And so what policies or approaches can we take that are going to reduce abuse the most overall? Um, and so I, I think I think when you put those two lenses next to each other, it's really easy for, I mean, I have been not publicly, but I've been calling a lot of my critics um, pretty cruel things too, saying you're choosing to report all of these things. You want to push all these abusers into the dark where these kids are going to get abused their whole lives with no hope of anything happening. Hundred, like you're, you're damning hundreds of children to this life. And that's not fair. They're saying there's a principle here and we should do it. And I think people are responding to me in the opposite way. They're saying, wait, this is a horrible thing. How could you justify it by saying the procedure is that's in place has good overall outcomes? Uh, that's so clinical, that's so dry. And, and so I get, I get that reaction that says, well, you're just defending not reporting this abuser. Um, and I think that's a pretty natural reaction. Um, but I don't think either of those people ultimately in the end are really trying to defend the abuse. I know I certainly am not. Um, it's, it's just that in trying to figure out what we can do better, we're coming at it from different angles. One of the things that I heard a lot online is that a lot of people felt, um, and I've already lost a friend over this, and it's it's a little bit heartbreaking um, because these are people I care about, and uh, you know I I always go into this with a, uh, you know as long as we care about the right thing, we may get there in different ways, but we can still get along. Um, but there's something about this that is really deep and 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 really hard. One of the things that I think touches a nerve for people is the issue of loyalty to the church or fidelity to the victims. And I think that's a false dichotomy. I think that you can do both. I think we have to do both. Even if you are um, the most anti-anti, right? Even if you don't like the church, I think that it is still a benefit to find a way for people of faith in the church um, to support um, and to... Uh, and by the way, I get why it's distasteful to see somebody worry about the church, right? And worry about the institution and say, well, but this isn't fair to the church. Um, but I don't think it's helped when this becomes polarized. I don't think that this issue is made better when it becomes an us versus them. There's a good camp and a bad camp. And if you have any loyalty, if, if your instinct is to go towards loyalty to the church in any way, then you're a part of the problem. No, you're human, right? If your political hero gets accused of doing something horrible and you want it to not be true because you love them, and you admire them, that's human. And, and, and recognizing that, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of like, imagine that there's two messages you can have. Do you, have you no shame or, Hey, I get it. I still think that there's something from this that we can learn and we all need to commit to doing everything we can. 
those two messages are just fundamentally different. I think one's a lot more effective. E- even if you don't agree with me, I think one is way more effective than the other. No, I think I've been pretty open uh, in my career uh, talking about issues related to the church, about where my where my biases are. And, and for me, I, I was born in a home of, of two recent converts. And so they still had that zeal of conversion and their lives were transforming before my eyes in becoming better and, uh, and really growing and feeling that redemption. And so for me, my faith was alive and it has been my whole life. And so my, my bias is that when a church is doing something, my instinct is to say, what about what they're doing is good? And so that's always going to be my bios because the church has done so much good in the lives of me and my family. And I don't think, um, you know, everyone's going to come in with their individual biases. And that's certainly mine. But I think you come, you have your bias, but then you try and set the terms, right? You try and say, okay, so sure, this is how I'm going to be inclined to see things. So maybe I'll see things that people with a different bias won't. But what is our goal? Right. And so I think like for what you're saying is like there's sort of this instinct to protect the church. Right. And I don't know that my instinct is to protect the church as opposed to my instinct is to see the good in the church. So that's my instinct. But then you say, okay, but how do we solve this problem? And what is the problem? And I think if if you say the problem is people are attacking the church. Well, I think that's a problem. That's not what the problem is. The problem is these two little girls got raped for years and their abuser wasn't turned in. That's the problem. The problem is that that happens thousands of times, uh, both inside and outside our church, every church and no church. Um, That's the problem. And we need to figure out how to address that problem. And when we're talking about the church, we're saying, how do we reduce this within the church? And so I think you can address that question from my bias. And I certainly don't think my bias reduces the accuracy of of the research that I've done or, um, but it's certainly fair for someone to have a different bias and come to different conclusions. And I think that's where this wrestle then comes in the public square where we're trying to figure out what to do. Um, no, I so think that's a good way to say it. I mean, I mean, the, there are kind of two ways of looking at discussion. One is that I need to win and one is I need to be made better. I need yeah. to bounce ideas around and actually improve. And that's kind of my shtick, right? Like, the whole point of the discussion is so that I can learn. Um, and I think that's really valuable. You, you mentioned, by the way, that more people could be made worse off under the second policy. Um, is it is it the case? I've been looking up the research. Now, this is a research literature that I don't know very well. So I'm still looking at this. I found one paper where, where the, um, the results are um, basically the same between states. It doesn't really matter that what the, what the, what, whether you have mandated reporting or you don't, there's basically no correlation. Um, and, and I may have misread that cause I read it really quick. And then the rest of the day I was, I was out with my kids, but, um, w- what is your impression of, of what the research says on this? And if you can point me anywhere, I'd, I'd love to read up on it more. Yeah. So that's, um, that's exactly what the research seems to say is that these laws don't work. They don't reduce abuse. They don't increase abusers who are getting penalized by the system. And what what they found, and I don't know the studies offhand, but I have them in my notes, and I'll send them to you if you want to include them in the notes for the podcast. 
But uh, what they've found is that there's two basic reasons why these laws aren't effective. Um, the first one is that volunteers are really bad mandated reporters. And so what happens is that when they report, um, they overwhelm the system. And then the, the social workers on the other end struggle to identify which ones to focus on. And so they're often chasing bad leads. The second reason- And, and just to be clear, you're not just saying, this isn't just type one, type two error. This is This is deeper than that. This isn't, we get a lot of false positives, but we catch more guys. This is we overwhelm the system and they can't check out valid cases because they don't have the capacity. Bingo. Exactly. Okay. That's exactly what, what happens. And then the other one is that people don't come forward to, uh, to report. Um, now, with mandated, with mandated reporters, if they're not going there, they're still often being caught in places where there's not confession happening, where they're seeing the symptoms in the kids and reporting. And that's why they end up evening out. Um, but so that's those are the two main reasons that kind of make it so that even though you get mandated reporting goes up, the overall reporting goes up, the actual uh, there's actually no reduction in the abuse. So then you take that understanding of how policies like this work, and then you apply it to an institution like the church. And the church seems to have kind of three directions that they can go in a case like this. Uh, one, they can do what it seems like most people are suggesting, which is they adopt a policy of every time they ever hear about any abuse, they report it immediately. Uh, there's no question. Uh, there's obviously positives with this. This would be a lot better for the church's reputation, if that's your main concern. Uh, this would be a lot. Which, to be clear, uh, if it is, that's a problem, right? Like you're a bad yeah, person. If that's right? your main concern. That is a problem. Um, I, I guess I, I feel like people are saying, oh, people who care about the church's reputation don't want this approach. And I'm like, no, this approach would take the church's. It actually makes it easier for the church. It, it's it's it black and white. Wash your hands yeah. of it. Move on. Yeah. Move on. Yeah. Um, it also uh, overwhelms the system because the church is run by volunteers and these volunteer bishops who are whatever dentists or laying down road is what mine is. They don't really have the, the tool sets to determine what should warrant uh, a call uh, of abuse. And there are, there's lots of factors. And I think people say any sign you should call and then they can check it out. But what we see is that if the church adopted that policy, they would be part of the problem yeah. in in overwhelming these systems. Well, and one way that I, I kind of think about this is, okay, so should bishops be mandated reporters? Yes. Okay, yes. Should Bishop Ricks be mandated reporters? Yes. Okay. How about young men and young women presidencies? And each time that you expand that circle, there are more false positives. There are more people getting called in. I think the actual benefit would be that more people are on the lookout, which mm -hmm. I think would be a good thing. Um, but there's going, again, the overwhelming, the system thing is not a minor issue, right? It, again, it's, it's, not. it's not just more yeah. false positives. This isn't more COVID tests that come back positive when you're actually fine. Yeah. Is, there, there, there's a cost imposed and it's missing the real cases. Uh, and then of course, I think the one that most people identify, uh, that is the harm of this process is that the real abusers go underground. And I think in this case, looking at the personalities of these people and how much they had isolated themselves already, 
I think people say if the church had had this policy, these girls would have been saved. I don't know if they would have been. I feel like if the church had had this policy, the chance that this man would have gone in would have been reduced a lot because he wouldn't want to confess. He clearly uh, was not prepared to face the consequences of what he was doing. Uh, and, and then where are we at, right? Are the girls still being abused in that home? Have they now endured five more years of this? If that was the church's policy, obviously there's no way to know the answer. But I think as we're balancing these things, we have to understand that, that there's a real cost to that approach, that that approach does not only create good. And it does create some good. I mean, let's not get that wrong. This, if we had had this policy and that guy came in and confessed, those girls would have been saved seven years earlier. That is a real good. Like this policy would be good in some cases, but there's also a real cost. The uh, the second approach that the church could take is the one that the Roman Catholic Church has taken, and that's the exact opposite. We will not say what happens in confession, no matter what. Um, this approach obviously would increase the ability to confess, which of course is a sacrament for Catholics. So preserving the ability to do that is of utmost importance to them, and we don't have the same uh the same need as they do. It's not at a sacramental level, but I think a case could easily be made of the importance of confession to repentance in our faith. With this policy, the church would not even be in this position. There would be, this lawsuit would be dead in the water. All these depositions from the bishops learning about what was said to the hotline, et cetera, none of those would have ever come out because the church would have just claimed religious privilege and it would have been done. Um, and that's the downside of this. Um, and I don't think sometimes people appreciate that. This would also be an approach that would be good for the church in a lot of ways, but then you're getting zero people turned in, right? right? And that's ultimately the, the real problem with this approach is, yeah, that might be good for the institution, just like the first one, but it, it's not helping the, the problem. Right. Um, I mean, I guess if, if priests know what's going on, they can minister to the family, so, I mean, there are some minor benefits. I, I don't want to throw that approach on, under the bus. Um, I'm sure that, that Roman Catholics who have this approach have really good reasons for it and, and that it can help in their communities. But, but I think ultimately there's a lot of negatives to this approach. And then the third approach is that you report sometimes. Um, and that's what the church has adopted. And I think there's some real positives to this approach. I think the first positive is what we learned from from the research on it is that volunteers overwhelm the systems. So who is good at figuring out when to report? Professionals, therapists, lawyers, doctors. So who do they, the bishops call? Well, they call a therapist lawyers, and, doctors, and then yeah. a lawyer, right? Like they talk to exactly the professionals who are in the right position to make these kinds of determinations. Uh, so that goes down. The second thing is by having it be a we report sometimes, I think people might expect that that would reduce the confession rate the same amount that having it is, but most abusers, uh, well, I shouldn't say most, I'm not familiar with research in this area. My impression is, and my experience in this area is, is that people who are abusive often have sort of narcissistic personalities. They think they can get away with anything. And so having a policy that says, we'll turn you in sometimes, we'll make a call, depending on what we think, is, is a real enticement to abusers because they believe that they can always beat the rap, 
I am, I am better than all those other people. I'm more charismatic. I will get away with this. Yeah, I can say the right thing to the bishop so he doesn't think that this one warrants reporting, right? And so then you still have a fair number of people coming in. The right ones are being called, so we're not getting um, false positives to the same degree. Um, but the real downside with this approach is that we sometimes get false negatives. That sometimes, uh, either because the information that the bishops have when they make the call isn't perfect, or sometimes because just the wrong judgment call is made that, that we say, hey, this is probably a time we don't need to report when it turns out it, it really was. And in this case, it, it really was a time to report. And I think we can, one of the things that I think is hard with the article is that the way it was written juxtaposed what the bishops did at that time versus what we know about the case now. now. But we don't really know what the bishops knew at the time. So it's really easy for me to say now the bishop should have reported. And I don't think anyone disagrees. Clearly, the bishop should have reported. But we don't know if it was like we don't know if how bad the call was. Like We don't know what they knew. We do know that the mother had told the bishop that it was done. Um, and we don't know if that influenced it. Certainly, if it's ongoing abuse is a big piece of whether or not it's something that needs to be reported. Um so, I, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking, I think, is, is a derogatory term. And I, I think it's appropriate to say, hey, let's not be too hard on these people because we don't we they didn't know then what we know now. But I also think it's a really important part of the process, kind of what you call it a hot wash. Yeah. Right. Like we should be Monday morning quarterbacking if we want our quarterback to be better. And since the stakes in this aren't one games, but children's lives, like it's really, really important to go back and say, OK. What did they know when? Why did they make the wrong call? What well, is and, 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 and let me let me add to that. Sorry, yeah. I'm being rude and interrupting. I, I think there's also a difference between so I don't know of anybody who thinks the bishop made the right call. Yeah. I, I, I have I have yet to hear anybody say that. I think that there is a difference, however, between saying, I don't know enough to know whether the bishop should go to jail, which is where I am because yeah. I don't know what he knew. That is not currently the the criminal case that's before us. We I don't have enough evidence. I don't know what the mom said. I don't know what the dad said, right? I don't know when it was communicated to him that he made the wrong call is obvious yeah. that he made an illegal call. I don't know. I'm also very comfortable that the, the helpline may have said the wrong thing. It would surprise me. I would be surprised by that, but okay. Like if that, if that's what happened, that's let's fix it. Right. Um, if it was the helpline, I think people need to get fired. Right. If they like, if that, like that was, that's just a bad call. Um, and at the same time, I worry about, I, I guess what I'm saying here is, yes, Monday morning quarterback, but at the same time, the evidence to me seems pretty strong that the bishop knew enough that they should have done something other than what they did. At the same time, Fair enough. Not, I, but I also don't know, you know, yeah. th this, this is one where it's like, if I was a member of the jury, I'd, I'd be asked to decide and I would get a lot more evidence and I would know. And maybe, maybe the, the bishop does need to go um to prison for a while i don't know i don't know i don't know how that works i don't know the statutes and i don't know the evidence but saying i don't know does not mean that he's off the hook i'm not condoning i'm saying i'm going to be hesitant and this is one that's really hard for for people like it sounds so callous um but that's because of my background and in, in doing investigations for suspensions right my gut instincts were wrong enough that I am extremely hesitant unless I have every piece of information 
because it's so easy to let your gut lead you wrong. And that doesn't mean that it should be cheapened. It doesn't mean that the bishop should be off the hook or the church or the or the helpline. That, that's different. What I'm saying is I have one article, article to go off of. I have one perspective and it is very much the prosecutor side. It is not the defendant side, right? I don't have enough information. What I know is that a tragedy occurred and that right now I'm in hot wash mode trying to say, what else can we do? What other policies are there? Let me learn as much as I can. Anyway. I think in some ways we're having two conversations, right? I think whenever there's a, a, a court case that makes a lot of news, people are talking about it and deciding what the outcome of that case could be. Uh, and I think that's where we get to questions like, what did the bishop know when and what should they have done and um, how, you know, who has what guilt? Uh, I, I know the, the, those questions interest a lot of people. Um, and I think that's, it's probably a good thing to be, to care about justice in those individual cases. And I, you know, it will come before a judge unless the, the church is able to make those little girls whole enough that that's not what they choose to do. Um, but they will have, like, they will be able to, to decide what they want to do. And so I think people are going to look at the case and, and argue about the case, but I think the other piece of it, and I think the piece that perhaps I jumped to too soon, but a lot of other people jump to as well is, okay, now that there's been this tragedy that happened as a result of the current system in place, what should be done? And I think in looking at the three options that the church has, I think in a basic way that we report it sometimes is still the right approach. And, and just, just to be clear, one... and just to be clear, the church's approach is follow the law in that state. So yes. if it's mandated a reporter every time, then that's what they're told to do. As so far as far right. as I know, that has not shifted. So I'm I'm not, you know, I don't think that you're saying that if the if the law in Texas says that you report all the time, that the, the church will say, well, no, we'll but we'll just do it some of the time. I don't. That's not what you're. There's arguing. no states in the U.S. like that. Uh, in fact, this was one of the earliest um, religious freedom cases in the United States. Was a Catholic priest was brought in and was put in jail because he would not say what was said in confession. Um, and this was a New York State Supreme Court case. So I guess it's not binding, but it, it's become a really important part of the fabric of our religious freedom. So there's going to be no state where bishops are required to say what has been told to them in confessional. Um, really? That's right. Um, that being said, bishops can still be mandated reporters in other ways in some states, as in if they see a bruise on a child, for example. Right does that bishop need to report that they uh, there are some states where they don't have a religious exemption for making that report and there are some states where they do got it so uh, what is so, told to them in confession there is no state where they are required to say that interesting that's something that i did not know so there's no place in the united states where if 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 i'm a bishop and somebody confesses to me it is always going to be the case that I have legal protection, whether I should or not, whether anything else, yeah. um, that is just the way that it is written right now. That's correct. Okay. Uh, that, yeah. That's just something I didn't know. I'm not sure how you feel about it. I'll be doing some thinking about that for a few days, but okay. Uh, 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 several States in Australia have recently removed that. Um, uh, was it a year or two ago? Probably with so, Cardinal. I think it was Cardinal Pell. Was it? It was, um, there was a cardinal that was out in Australia that was, that was, I can't remember if he was accused or convicted, but I, I want to say he was convicted. Um, well, so what is said in confessionals right now, in theory, needs to be reported in Australia. Uh, and that's obviously been a source of some uh, contention. 
uh, and controversy there. Um, it's really hard to know what the results of that have been. Uh, I've kind of looked to see what's happened with abuse and abuse skyrocketed in Australia after this law, but that was the period of COVID. You know, domestic abuse skyrocketed everywhere during COVID. That so, may not be because of this policy. Yeah, I, you know, there's really no way for me. Maybe there's some economists who who can get down to it, but there's you know, there's no real way for someone without a, a real background in that to be able to say, hey, this policy happened and this was the result, and perhaps there's a connection. I mean, maybe there is, but there's a much bigger, obvious answer for why domestic abuse went up after that law was passed. Um, but if you're kind of asking that question, should we have that exemption, Australia is probably a good case to continue looking at. Uh, just in terms of statistical analysis. Yeah. yeah. So I, it was Cardinal Pell. He was found guilty of very sexual offenses, but then they, those were later quashed by the High Court of Australia. The Holy See's Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith um, concluded in his acquittal. Basically, they, they found that he hadn't done it. Now that's that's the church court. So there's there's a lot of controversy about whether that should be believed or not. But um, that's what I remembered that that Pell had been found guilty, and then later on it was it was overturned on appeal. Um, what are the things that, um, that what are the things on your mind and heart that you still want to say? I think one thing that's hard in a case like this is that there's not going to be any institutions that are perfect on this issue. There's not. There is abuse in every community. Um, in fact, while we're kind of under the impression that it happens more in religious institutions, uh, I'm not familiar with any research that looks at that in the US, but um, a German one was done recently that showed that abuse was much higher in secular institutions uh, compared to Protestant and Roman Catholic institutions there. Um, I don't know that the numbers matter. It's a tragedy everywhere, but it also happens everywhere. And right now, the church has this tragedy that has happened within it. And so people want to look at the church as having failed on this. And they did. They did fail on this in this instance. And are there things that it can that can be done to improve it? Probably. I think we probably do need to look at what happened, why it was not an absolutely report in this case from the helpline. What are the criteria that they're using? How do we improve that criteria? But I think you know, focusing on, on one case, what we miss is that overall the church's the church is extraordinary uh, in terms of abuse. So in terms of clerical abuse, there was a leak. Um, the Truth and Transparency Foundation was a group that got leaks of church documents. They eventually went to other faiths as well and then would leak them out. And one of the documents that they got uh, was of the reports of abuse that occurred um, that uh, that a church leader or a missionary so someone that would have been the church would have been liable for them having abused someone uh, and they had all the reports that happened during this month of october and if you take the rates that we know of among the general population 
that uh, sexual assault and uh, child abuse happen. We see that the numbers that you would expect to see given the numbers of bishops and stake presidents and missionaries that we have are so much lower. I mean, they are one sixty-sixth of what you would expect to see if leaders in the church were abusing people at the same rate as men in the same ages. Um, and so to say what policies need to be changed, we need to make sure that we aren't changing part of the ecosystem in the church that is leading to these extraordinary results. The church is an extraordinarily safe place in terms of child abuse and sexual assault. You are much safer in the church than in so many comparable institutions. So do we want to avoid, like, do we want to prevent every single case we do? And we should keep working to improve. And I think, like you say, I think this is an opportunity for the church to get even better if they can look and say, hey, something did go wrong here. Where can we improve? But but the last thing that I would want to see happen is an overreaction that says, oh, the church is terrible on this issue. We have to wipe away what they've done. Like, why doesn't the church do it like the rest of the world? Well, you don't want the church to do it like the rest of the world because the church is already doing it so much better. That doesn't mean they do it perfect. That doesn't mean that this wasn't a tragedy. It was. This was wrong. What happened here was wrong. But the, the larger institutional procedures that they have put in place have made it so that abuse happens a lot less uh, in the church. Now, all of those numbers are based on whether or not those leaks can be believed. Uh, obviously, the church does not release those uh, those kind of numbers, and it's only based on, on one month. The church never confirmed that data. But the Truth and Transparency Foundation has had a good uh, record of releasing authentic documents. Um, and so if this is true, then that, that the church is doing really, really well. And, and that's not numbers that the church released. No, the church should not release that at all. They're that not going to leak. release all of the, all of the, you know, all of the cases that they've been involved in. Um, but I would certainly encourage people to go out and look at it if they're curious about it. Because what you see in these cases is... Uh, largely the church trying to make victims whole. They're trying to reach out. They're trying to make sure that they're paying for the counseling that they need, that they're getting some compensation for what was done wrong to them. And they're trying to repair the hurt that the church is responsible for because someone who represented them did something awful. Um, and so I, I think I think the church comes out really well in those leaked documents. It certainly doesn't come out perfectly. Um, but I think if, if people are trying to say, hey, what if they want more examples of what the church does, I think that's a good place to go. Uh, they can look at that and kind of see more examples of, of the church's approach on these kinds of issues. Uh, so I guess that's my hesitancy. And that's why I wanted to write um, write something like this. I, I had done the that analysis back when those documents came out in 2018. And so when this came out, and everyone was calling for the churches to change the for the church to change its policy. I was like, hold on. We don't want the church to change the thing that's working really good. And I think maybe in some of that, and some of that, hey, we want to keep what's working well. I, I missed the point of, well, what happened is a real tragedy. Um, and I, I don't know that that came across as well in the article I, I had written. Um, 
but, but, but I do stand by it. Like what I, what I wrote was true and the church is doing really well here. And we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Well, and to be clear, we that's, that's not going to feel good to somebody who has experienced abuse. And I want to emphasize, yeah, right. Somebody's going to hear this and say, what about me? To which my answer would be right. Like if it's one sixty-sixth as big a, a problem, and I haven't looked at those numbers independently. I trust you, but I'll, I'll, I'll take a look at them later. Um, but let's assume that that's the case. That's still, I mean, the number I think was seven out of 170,000. That's still seven cases. Still seven. And cases. that's still seven too many. And that I think was in a month, right? Yeah, so over the month. course of a year, that's, that's a lot of, that's too many cases. There are still going to be people who are having this private hell visited upon them. But I, again, to, to, to your point, when, when, uh, when BYU was in the news for, for honor code issues, you know, the, stati- the, the statistic side of me wanted to say, okay, but how does it compare to other, other institutions? Not to defend it. That's not the point. The point is baby with the bathwater. If we throw out things that are working, then more people are going to suffer. If the church changed immediately tomorrow, for example, to mandated reporters in every case and people stop coming forward and we overwhelm the system... And the church is able to wash their hands and look really good and never get a lawsuit again. But we help a hundred fewer people a year. That's not something I'm comfortable with. Right. Yeah. And, and that's, that, that to me is the actual moral calculus involved. And that's a much harder question to answer. So it is. And, you uh, know, getting back to those utilitarian ethics. And that's why when you talk like this, when you talk about how do we reduce the number of, of cases, it can feel bad. It can feel heartless because there are those people who were hurt. And it's like, well, why doesn't my case matter? And it is the answer is your case does matter. Your case is tragic. And we should do everything we can to stop it. But we should also make sure that those all those other people who would have been hurt. Sorry, I'm trying to do more math in my head on the 166 and I can't. Um, I do all my math for my articles in Excel, not in my head. Fair. Um, <laughs> the, the, the real man's calculator, right? That's right. Um, but there's all those people who would be hurt if the church had different policies and all of them have been saved. All of those lives are cleaner. Think of all of the infants who haven't been raped because the church has this policy. Because what the church is doing works. It, it's like when I said that, it's like I'm thinking of my three-year-old daughter, right? Uh, and thinking about this this victim of this of this terrible man, and it's I mean it's a really emotional thing about what's happened, and it's so sick and it's so gross, and it is it's hard to talk in some of these kind of economic disinterested terms. It does seem cold, and I get that I get that response, but I think. Clayton Christensen, uh, since we're talking economics, <laughs> uh, was uh, an area authority 70 where I served my mission. Uh, so I was extraordinarily fortunate to hear him talk uh, many times. And one of the things that he said to us is he says a lot of times missionaries complain about the focus on numbers. Because missionaries set numerical goals about the work that they're going to do. And then some say, hey, this is wrong. And he says, he says, that's the right instinct, right? God doesn't think of individuals 
in numbers. He thinks about them as individuals. He knows every hair on their head. But he says God is the only being who is capable of not aggregating above the individual, which is a very economic way to look at it. But he's like, if we want to fix the problem for as the most people as possible, sometimes we have to say, okay, we're going to step away from the individual for a second to say, well, how does this work on a system-wide basis? How is this going to save the most people in an abstract sense, right? All those hundreds of babies who haven't been raped, we never know about them. There's no face to them. They're theoretical. And so it can be so much easier to never want to talk about them because we're so hurt by the real. And that's good. That's the human instinct. But I, I don't know that it, it serves the most people over the long run. First of all, you're exactly right. And, and, and I want to be clear. Um, I can come off as a Vulcan sometimes, and that's that's not helpful when people want to feel compassion and they want to feel empathy. And I, I recognize that. Um, I will say that I think um, I got into economics because I realized that it was uh, policy. The, the language of policy is economics, right? That's, that's where you learn how to make policy that works and how to think through policies. And I don't have a PhD in policy. I just want to emphasize, right? I have a little bit of training. Um, it makes me think sharper and very different. I'm not very popular at dinner parties because I, I think very, very differently, I think, than most people. Um, but the concept that I was thinking of is there's there's a there's the old um, I don't know, Maxim, the, the the old idea that you you go over to the lake and you 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 put the bucket in and you take a, a bucket of water, you walk around to the other side where the cameras are waiting and the and the journalists and you say, look at me. I am making the water level of the lake rise. And then you pour the bucket of water in dramatically, right? And as it turns out, I think that there's that issue of, are you actually doing some good? Um, and, and by the way, if the answer on that, nothing would make me happier than to find out that mandated reporting across the board fixes problems because then it's a slam dunk on policy level. And I would have no problem saying, yeah, let's go for it. Great. Let's awesome. Let's do it. I'm just not convinced. Yeah. I don't think there's a reason to say... Like, I don't think anyone is trying to say the way the church has done it is right because the church has done it that right. way. Right. So we have to defend that. I think what I'm saying is that the best research I've done has shown that what the church is doing is probably the best approach right now with the caveat that there can certainly be improvements to that. Um, but well, I mean, like you're saying, if if more research is done in this area and that's clearly not the best case, then obviously I would hope that they would adopt a different policy to reflect the best knowledge we have on how to reduce this as much as we can, because that's what we all want. Well, and I, I want to go back to something that, that we talked about earlier. If you are, whether you're a member of the church, whether you're, you're, you're struggling with this, whether you're, you're a, an angry, you know, ex-member of the church, whatever you are, um, assuming that the people who, who, are different from you on this are bad and evil and wrong isn't just wrong it isn't just flagrantly stupid though it is it's also going to be damaging in the long run and it is fundamentally selfish if your goal is the church did nothing wrong i have a narrative i have to support it that's a problem you're, you're more worried about feeling safe than you are about actually helping people and the same thing goes of people who want to beat the drum more of this is why you should leave the church than of those people who are saying um, like if you're driving a narrative more than you are trying to think through, how can we help these people? 
it like that that to me is a problem and and i think that that's where my impatience came up is like you know i get that there's a tendency to circle the wagons i've actually been quite pleased that most of the people who normally do have kept their mouth shut because they can cause more problems than they than than they solve um and I'm, i'm talking specifically about a couple of groups that i'm quite pleased i have not seen a lot from lately um they're the worst and they say really idiotic stupid things and it's it's very much like um gut level i just defend just to defend and uh, you know that doesn't help here at the same time when you are angry and you're frustrated at the injustice of the world um i think that's the exact time to realize that so i don't know anybody who isn't everybody wants this to be fixed everybody wants this to be addressed and and the, and getting back to your point the ultimate, the, I, I don't want to leave this on a fatalist note. I'm not saying that there aren't things we can do. I believe in policy. I think that there are things that we can attempt and we should do every one of them. Um, I do not yet know of a system that has cured homicide. I do not know of a city in the world that has, has, has ended domestic abuse, right? The frank reality is that, is that this is hard and everybody wants to fix this stuff. Um, but neither am I going to, you know, I don't know neither am I going to be shamed into, into keeping quiet because somehow like that to me seems just as selfish, right. To, to protect my, my reputation in order to look good for other people. When I'm like, guys, I, th- I think you're making the wrong call policy wise. Right. I, I'm going to speak up and if I'm unpopular, then fine. So be it. But I feel like I have an obligation to do the best that I can in the situation that I find myself in. I think that's probably the invitation to the people who are crying that the church had the wrong policy and they need to change it to an always report policy is if, if that's really what you think should happen the, 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 then show us why you think that that's going to work show us why you think that's going to hurt less people because I, i'm not convinced that's what the evidence says uh, and i think right now the conversation is still at the level where it's just the anger right it's just the same we need to do this because this was a bad thing and, and this would have prevented it in this one case. Well, but that, like <laughs> making good. policy off of one's uh, off of one case is how we got the war in Iraq. Right. Like, and I am kidding, but I'm also not kidding. Right. Yeah. Like it's, it's a problem and you have to, anyway, that, again, yeah, that, that so doesn't well. mean that doesn't mean that it's not a tragedy. I'm not trying to, 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 to soft pedal nine 11 or, or in this case, and that's, I'm not being flippant either. People died in nine 11. Right. But like, you can you can react in ways that again to your point so so jennifer roach and i were talking earlier today and she said something really she said a couple of things there are a lot of things the church could do if it was only worried about protecting itself oh there's 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 a bunch of different ways that would be really easy they could structure things differently they could they could have each stake be incorporated they could so that it's so that it's limited in the amount of damages that it can do and so it doesn't become well the church has a problem it becomes well that stake has a problem um, another one that it could do is, um, what you're talking about where it just becomes the black box and we don't know, and we don't say, and so you just got to deal with it. Um, I think honestly that the mandated reporter thing also makes it easier for the church because they can say, nope, we mandate reporting every time and we do it every time. And that's just how it is, but it's the scene versus the unseen. It's the, it's the bucket at the back of the lake versus the bucket at the front of the lake. Um, the scene versus the unseen, um, impact I think is, is a really heavy one here. So, yeah, I think. I think some of the criticism that's been levied at the church in this has been unfair, right? I think if the church decided to black box, if the church decided to mandate reporting, like both of those would be better for the church and its reputation. And so this idea that the church has chosen this policy 
where they're going to now be liable for every single wrong call. Like that's that's to that's to reduce abuse. Like that approach is is the worst one for the church's liability. That approach is the worst one for the church's reputation. Like this idea that that this middle approach that then puts them on the line in every single case is somehow calculated to help the church. That shouldn't be the focus of this conversation. But I think so many people have, like you said, immediately gone to finger pointing at the church. And and I I don't see it. I, I don't see the church's policy here as being inevitable to protect itself. It seems like the church's policy has been designed to do exactly what the church says its policy is designed to do, which is reduce abuse. Well, and it gets to this very weird place where you have to believe simultaneously that um, the senior leaders of the church are these good, kind men um, who who are just, you know, nicest people in the world, but also they're, they're horrible, evil conspiracists who just really want to, who all they care about is like it, it defies reason in my mind. And I think it's, it's very odd. And at the same time, my answer to that would be like, I like that's even me saying it right now is a distraction from what actually matters. Right. Like that's, that's the wrong conversation to have. If you have that opinion of church leaders, fine. Like we don't need to, like we can, we can move on. We all want to reduce abuse. I do too. I think my policy is better than yours. And if I'm wrong, you're going to have to prove it with something more than your opinion right? Or your gut level instinct or well, sick tweet about how bad you are, right? Like I, I don't care, but that I think is the, is to me what needs to take the cake and, and, and be the priority. Um, well, anything else on your mind, anything else that you wanted to add to the conversation real quick? Well, I appreciate you. Uh, you let me come on and, and chat about um, the article and about what's happened here. I, uh, I think it's a good conversation to have. Um, I think um, this is a really good reporter. Uh, certainly, he has his blind spots like all reporters do, but he's certainly shined light on one of the failures of the church's system. And since I think we all want to reduce every single failure we can, I think this is a real opportunity. I think this is a good conversation to be having. I just hope that in the zeal to punish or the reactionary to one case, we don't make it worse, that we don't actually take something that's working a lot better than most other systems are and end up making it worse because we feel the need to do something. Um, so I, I think we should take this as an opportunity, but I think we should be humble about, about our conclusions, uh, that we should be careful uh, as we are advocating for what policy changes we hope to see. Um, but but I, I think that's kind of where I feel this conversation is. And I guess maybe why I'm a little saddened by by the response to the article, um, because I, I do, I just worry that that fear puts us on a worse path. And that, that makes me sad thinking about all those children who, who could be hurt, but but wouldn't be. Well, um, I'll just I'll just end on the note that I, I said earlier, which is um, I would love to be proven wrong. If I'm wrong on the policy, that that's an easy fix because then it's a slam dunk. Um, and at the same yeah. time, I, I I 
I don't mean to toot my horn too much on this, but I can assure you that if you don't like my stance and you think I'm a horrible person, that's fine. I'm over it. Um, but I can promise you that I'm better than some voices out there. And when reasonable, thoughtful people that you don't agree with are out there, keep in mind that like, I am at least trying and I do listen and that's something, right? Um, and that if you, you know, if, if the reasonable people can't talk, then it will be filled with unreasonable people. And that's, that's the curse, right? So um, I think that there's um, something to be said for, uh, you know, being wrong, but still trying your best. Um, and if that's where I am, then that's, that's the best comfort I have. Um, and, and, and again, I know I have biases. I try and put them to the side when I can. I love the church. I love the gospel. I really do think it's doing the, the, to me, it's not so much a bias. It's not like I'm going to be an apologist. I'm going to defend the church. It's much, it's much more of just like, are we even talking about the same thing? Mm. This does not make any sense to me. Like we are, have you been in the same institution? Right now at the same time, if somebody was abused by a bishop at some point, they're going to feel like, are we in the same institution? I get that, like that there's a real disconnect there, but it's really hard to, I need to take the time to have the grace for that other person and slow down and say, okay, what is that other person feeling? Um, and, uh, and go from there. Well, thank you for this. Uh, I know it's, it's hard and I, I think you've, you've tried to be thoughtful and articulate and I'm sure that everyone will take this really well and thoughtfully and not say anything, you know, not, no, neither one of us is going to get any flack for this, I'm sure. Um, but I think at the end of the day, I'm, I'm trying my best and that's, uh, I will sleep fine at night, um, because I'm trying my best. Um, and so we'll go from there. Well, thanks for joining me and we will talk again soon. Thanks, Ben. It's good to be informed, but there's a problem. There isn't enough time in the day to become an expert in everything. To be useful in life, you have to make decent decisions on the fly without all the information. That's why we're not trying to be experts here. The goal of our podcast is about ideas and insights. We're not married to being right. Our goal is to contribute something meaningful to the conversation before it moves downstream. Our goal isn't to be provocative, but to be insightful. So if you're looking to help the podcast, don't just advertise it. Advertise an insight you gained or skill you're trying, something that you've learned from us. Then use the hashtag Radical Civility so we can see that we're making a difference. Thanks for listening. We hope you find it helpful.